Welcome to IMTV. I'm Alan Keyes and this is Let's Talk America. Uh, today I had occasion to think about John F. Kennedy's inaugural speech. Uh, at one point, uh, after having introduced things and said the usual sort of introductory stuff, he was talking about what he was going to do in his inaugural address. And he uh, said that it wasn't going to be a call to battle, though embattled we are. And it's a, it's a little trope that I've never forgotten, because it often describes the situation, sadly, uh, in which we find ourselves as a people. And I'm not sure we should worry about that. Today, I'm going to be going more deeply into that, as we have for the last several weeks, as we have to, I think, if we're going to save America. I'll be doing it uh, with an old friend of the program, uh, who is also a good friend of life, uh, and who follows the path by which we can retain the basic premises of our liberty and remain a self-governing nation. That is what's at stake, and he and I will be talking about it right after these words. I'm Alan Keyes. I just want to let you know that on a recurring basis every Tuesday, we're going to have a guest, Mike Adams, the Health Ranger. He's going to be joining us to talk about the whole array of challenges, both in terms of our health as a people and as individuals, and our health as a nation. We'll be looking at those things through the eyes of someone who has thought deeply about many things and who has many great ideas to share with me and with you and with everyone who tunes in to Let's Talk America on Tuesdays when we meet with the Health Ranger to talk about how we sustain the health of our liberty. Welcome back. Uh, my guest today is John Michener. Now you have, uh, some of you anyway, if you've been watching the program, you've met John before. Uh, he and I are compatriots in the battle uh, to defend the premise of life on which our country was founded. We do remember every now and again, aside from those fleeting moments now during the 4th of July when somebody actually remembers that it doesn't commemorate the day on which America declared its independence. See, a lot of people don't know that. That was July 2nd, the day it actually was done as a formal matter and so forth and so on. I know it was actually the, the commemorated the day on which they all agreed on what today would be called, I suppose, the media release or the press release, as they used to call it. That is to say, the document in which their action was announced to the world and in which the media would then pour over to try to pull out things that uh, were to their liking or that they hated uh, in what had been said. That's the Declaration of Independence. And the basic premise of the Declaration is twofold. God, creation, and the endowment by God of unalienable rights to all human beings. And the first right listed is life. You remember the famous phrase, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness? If you look at our world today, you would think that we have entirely forgotten about that particular premise, even in the way we're going about dealing with the COVID crisis. I'll get to that in the course of things, I'm sure. But right now, let me take this moment and welcome John back to the show. He is uh, the leader of a group called Oklahomans United for Life. But his reach 
goes far beyond Oklahoma, he has, uh, because they are in touch with folks around the country who take a very proactive role, uh, an effort to get the people who say that they are pro-life to actually act like it, especially when they have government power in their hands. Uh, I'd have to tell you, John, that it seems to me that that first part of the message, uh, act like you believe these things that you say you believe, the Democrats seem to take that very seriously because they actually believe in tyranny and despotism and totalitarianism, and a lot of them have been acting like it. But the people who profess to believe in liberty and self-government, they've been a little bit behindhand, don't you think? Well, the scary thing is the way the Republicans in power have been acting in our state. I know states are different from place to place, but the GOP took over the state of Oklahoma well over a decade ago, and they've become entrenched. And I now believe that whoever's in power is going to act like the tyrant. Hmm. But, you know, you open the program with talking about the whole purpose of our government. Basically, it starts with God and his creation. He gives human individuals rights, the right not to be killed, to own their own property and to be free. And really what our founding documents lay out is that the only legitimate purpose for government is to protect our God-given rights, to ensure that we are not killed and have our property stolen. That's what a real right is. It's a right to be left alone unless we're harming other people. And in the midst of this coronavirus craziness that's going on, we're seeing a renewed battle of federalism out here in our state. We've got um, city mayors, county sheriffs, the governor, all these different levels of government are competing with each other to tyrannize us in different ways, telling us which businesses have to shut down and who has to wear a mask and whether or not you can have this surgery or buy this car or get this beer or this hamburger, and how you can get it and how you can eat it. It's been a mess. I mean, a disaster out here. But it's renewed this debate of what is the purpose of government. We're seeing executives going around telling people what to do, abusing their lives and their property, which is in direct violation of our founding documents and the very concept of government. And so I guess it begs the question, what, what is a proper use of governmental authority? And it goes back to these very foundational principles that you bring up over and over again in every show. You have to defend life. You have to defend property. And what most of these executives are doing right now with their executive orders in the name of protecting us from some so-called virus is actually tyranny. They're actually violating our lives and our property. So it's not so much a question of of whether or not executive orders are appropriate, but of are they using them appropriately? Because I think you can properly use an executive order to, to defend people's life and property, or you can inappropriately use it to shut people's businesses down and destroy their lives. And so we have to wade through that. I'll pause here and give you an opportunity to question or comment. Well, I, the, what I, I was thinking was that that's, a very accurate description, I think, of the situation we're in. But it often applies given, depending on the actual situation you're confronted with, it really ends up being a balancing act. And that's why I think there was a preoccupation uh, from early on, really, in the course of our history. When dealing with our constitutional institutions, uh, they talked about checks and balances. 
which is to say how you stop certain things from happening, put a check on them, or you can use the other meaning of check, how you oversee them to make sure that they stay within bounds. Both, uh, I think, terms, senses of the word apply in this circumstance, uh, especially with respect to government, but also, though we forget it, with respect to individuals. See? Uh, Madison rightly observed, I think, it might have been in Federalist 51, uh, or was it Federalist 10? I'm forgetting right this minute. But he rightly observed that first you must have a government that can control the people. See, a lot of folks these days would sort of bridle at that and think, really? Is that what you do first? And then you must, you must contrive so that the government controls itself. What does that mean? And why would he put the control of the people first, or the controlling people first? Well, he put it first because if men were angels, government wouldn't be necessary. See? Yeah, the whole point of the Constitution was that government's necessary, and that if it's necessary, it needs to be effective. So the first thing you're trying to do, since the only reason you have it is that men are not angels, is to make sure that those who are not acting like angels stay within bounds, are not allowed to destroy the right doings, the exercise of right, of other people. And that's the situation, I think, presented by the, the claim and this is part of the first problem, the claim of the pandemic. Because if just by going outside and shaking somebody else's hand, I can transmit a deadly virus to them, doesn't that harm them? And isn't it therefore then a responsibility of government to see to it that I do not carelessly commit that harm without regard for their well-being? Um, I don't think we can escape that. Uh, we have to look at how we got into this situation. Because like war and enemies attacking, if you go on doing what you're doing right now, that enemy will defeat us. Therefore, we have to stop you from doing it, and you have to pay attention to what's necessary to defeat the enemy. Uh, that's why in every war we've had, there have been all kinds of restrictions, including, by the way, the regimentation of production of various and assorted goods to make sure that we didn't throw away or fail to produce things that were vital to the war effort while we were doing the things we thought were more important than the war effort as individuals. You see what I'm saying? I think that balancing act is part of what we're wrestling about right now. Uh, am I wrong? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, of course, it begs the question of how true these things are that they're using to manipulate us. Exactly. But um, I prefer actually to take the question of the truthfulness of the claims and set it aside for the sake of argument and focus on the other two brilliant points that you made. One is about needing to control the people and two is about whether or not they will be controlled. I mean, you raise these good psychological points. Men collectively, we know, tend to follow leadership. They need a shepherd whether it's a good shepherd who cares for them or a tyrant that just wanna, wants to use them in his armor, army and to fund his personal programs, either way, people tend to follow strong leadership. Collectively, they kind of act like sheep. So there's that going on, which means that regardless of who's in charge, whether we elected them or appointed them or our representatives appointed them or they took over by force, it doesn't matter how they got there, they're going to lead us. And the question is where? 
Well, can I, can I intervene with a question? Sure. Because the question I'm about to ask goes to a fundamental premise about leadership. And that premise, I think, was encapsulated in the slogan at the time of the revolution um, that has never left my mind, though I think it's sort of slipped the minds of a lot of people in our day because they don't like the reminder that the separation of church and state dogma is a lie. Because the, the slogan was, no king but Jesus. But King Jesus, right. And, and, and that meant that for a lot of people in the United States at that time, they thought they had a leader, and they were committed to following that leader, and that leader was Jesus Christ. The argument was actually made that because they were following a leader who is the archetype of righteousness, in whose life is balanced the respect for individual life and right doing, and respect for the need to obey the ultimate sovereign God, right? A perfect balance is achieved in Christ which then exemplifies itself in respecting the rights of others up to and including the point of being willing to sacrifice your life so that the standard of right would be observed. Um, uh, at the same time that you are encouraging others to submit to that authority uh, which informs the substance of right. Um, don't you think that part of our problem now though is that the people were expected to be the leader by the founders. They weren't expected to be followers in sheep because as sheep they followed Jesus. But as followers of Jesus, they defy all those who say that they must be obeying a human power that violates the premises of God. That's what gave them courage. And it's what gave them the right to arrogate to themselves the authority of government. It wasn't just a question of power on the battlefield. It was a question of spiritual right and authority derived from their commitment faithfully to follow the tenets of God. Does that make sense? It, it does. And I think that that very dynamic right there, that tension between the people following the truth and following a shepherd and reason and rationality versus raw power is always there. Mm. And as government grows and grows and grows, you see the cycle of history. Eventually, governments become unsustainable and they collapse on themselves from corruption. Yeah. There's never been one that didn't. So we're going to end up there eventually. And then it's, it's in those times of, of chaos and collapse when the people of God arise and lead with the truth to rebuild a new community based on God's principles. And that's essentially what was happening in the 18th century with our founding fathers. You had a very Christian nation. People were dependent upon Jesus as king and God's principles, and they built a community and a nation on those principles. But 200 years removed, we don't have a populace. We don't have a voting block that understands those principles anymore. So we're staring collapse in the face, unfortunately. I don't know if we can educate enough people and fan the flames of faith enough to save what we've got without some serious hardship in the process. I would have to agree with that as, as a di diagnosis of our condition. However, and it's a severe disease because uh, flame uh, can be produced by embers, right? Even when yeah. it looks like your barbecue is going out, some, 
You add there. a little wood, you blow on it a little bit, and so forth and so on, and, and uh, that fuel can be there. So this is what I think is so important about the pro-life movement, though. As I look over the course of my lifetime, it seems to me that what has demonstrated the presence of embers of our kindling in the American body politic has been the persistent and irrepressible existence of the pro-life movement. In spite of all the things arrayed against it, there has been that sense which acknowledging the authority of God comes to the defense of those who have no power but represent, in fact, the true claims of human life from the vantage point of God. In other words, the helpless baby in the womb nonetheless benefits from protection derived from the authority of God that we are obliged to respect so that authority doesn't grow out of the barrel of a gun or the voice of a mob. It comes from the determination of God for the, uh, the, the destiny of humanity, which starts out by sharing his being in such a way that our life becomes possible. Um, have we fallen below the level, you think, of kindling that's necessary to give us hope that the flames can be rekindled? Well, the embers are definitely there. God always preserves a remnant. No matter how bleak it looks, you're still going to find that 100, that 300, that 10, that one for which God will not destroy the kingdom, the nation, the people. So the embers are there, but we have to be the prophetic voice that breathes God's wind, his mm. spirit, his mm. breath onto those embers. Mm. And I think a great example for us is when Jonah went to the city-state of Nineveh. They were a depraved and wicked people, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of violence in the city. But Jonah went into that city and preached, and within just a few days, his word, his prophetic message of warning reached the king of Nineveh, and he repented. And then he became the kind of leader that led all of his people through executive order, by the way. He told them through de official decree to stop your violence, stop your bloodshed. We're repenting from this. We're going to stop that. You know, if we were put it in a modern context, it would be like the governor of a state issuing a proclamation and abolishing abortion and saying, we're going to stop our bloodshed immediately. And people would go along with that. So how wicked and depraved were they? The scripture says they were in pretty bad shape, but within a matter of days, through effective executive leadership, they were able to turn things around. And that's really what I got to thinking about in the, in the midst of what's going on here. One of the things that I think proves your concern, but it's also very dismay. I think there are still a lot of these Republican executives who would never get elected to office if they profess themselves to be uh, in favor of a laissez-faire approach to abortion. Oh, let them do it. We can't interfere with that. That's because that's a... No, they actually go out a lot of the time and they campaign and they appeal uh, to pro-life sentiment at the grassroots in the party and they get their margin of victory from the consolidated support of that group. Why don't they follow up? Well, because they know they don't need to follow up. They're actually afraid of the consequences of following up. They only want to do enough to consolidate and maintain and grow power. And they can't just come out and say, well, I'm for murdering babies. That's too anathema to our moral intuition. That, that wouldn't 
play well with the voting block. But the folks are used to just, they're used to the rhetoric. Do you remember George Orwell's 1984 and war is peace and love is hate and all that? The people were able to swallow the rhetoric and swallow the propaganda and think that uh, that the party, you know, really did have truth and justice in their best interest at heart, but they were doing exactly the opposite. War is peace. The, de- the Department of, uh, of Peace was actually in charge of prosecuting wars and on and on with each ministry. And so if we were to take that kind of paradigm and overlay it onto what's happening today, what you see is that pro-choice is pro-life. So what you said earlier about this ultimate principle of life being foundational is still true, and it still rings true with people. However, the political elites and establishment that get elected and hold office and have the power to actually do something are doing exactly the opposite. So let me give you, I've got a couple examples that I think would be helpful. Do you need, want to ask a question first? No, go ahead. ahead. Let me give you two examples. I'll give you one example from the executive and one from the legislature. In the middle of this so-called pandemic, the governor of our state, Kevin Stitt, issued an executive order. This is a binding order. Uh, It comes with penalties built into the law if you violate the order. Part of his order was to close abortion clinics. No more abortions during the pandemic. Was this executive order enforced? The answer is no. I checked with the cities, with the counties, with the state, the state police, and the governor's office. Everyone confirmed we are not enforcing this. It's more of a suggestion, even though it's an order. Well, that made me very upset. Finally, a court came out, uh, a federal circuit court, and said, well, it's unconstitutional. You can't do it anyway. So the executive was just kind of dragging its feet and got all this wonderful press, wonderful headlines about how pro-life he was, how much he cared about the babies, and look, he's stopping abortion, but not one abortion was ever stopped. Mm. And it's actually worse than that, because across the border in the other nation of Texas, they actually did stop surgical abortions. So we went from doing 15 to 20 abortions today to doing 50 or 60 a day because Texans were crossing the border to have their abortions in Oklahoma because we couldn't put our foot down Mm. in the executive branch. Mm. Same thing's happening in the legislative branch. We looked at more than a dozen bills this year dealing with abortion. Only one of them would have criminalized all abortion. They didn't even hear it. There was another bill that would have at least, if it were enforced, closed down the abortion death camps didn't vote on it either. Instead, what they did was they passed a bill that was calling itself something like the Unborn Person Protection Act. But when you read it, it didn't do anything except give protection against liability lawsuits to abortion doctors. It actually said you can't sue an abortion doctor if he follows all the state statutes. Yet they are telling us it's a pro-life bill. Okay, War is peace. Love is hate. Pro-life is pro-choice your, now. Your, your examples are perfect, I, I think, for illustrating the fact that it reminds me of the military uh, piece that was being played when the British surrendered at Yorktown. It was called The World Turned Upside Down, right? Yes. And I think what we're in is a situation where this use of the word choice um, and it's, conge- it's, it's sort of uh, pairing with the notion of a right to kill unborn children takes the concept of rights and stands it on its head. 
It takes the concept of liberty and turns it against itself. Um, and uh, I, I think that's a very good place for us to take the little break we have to take right now. And then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more in terms of fundamentals about why this self-destructive contradiction uh, now seems to prevail even amongst those who claim that they are opposing the advent of totalitarianism that is being announced in the present era by the abuses of executive power that are taking place in some places. We'll be right back. More IMTV episodes? We are now streaming through Roku. Roku is a device that enables you to stream entertainment to your TV through your internet provider. The starting price is only $29, and you can purchase one either online or through your local electronics retailer. It's easy to use, and you won't have to worry about missing any more IMTV episodes. IMTV, changing the world. Podcasts are great when you're a multitasking person. You can listen to them around the house, when you're out in the car, when you take a walk. Now we have put our shows on to podcasts, and you can listen to Let's Talk America uh, on podcasts. You can find them at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, and other apps. And while you're there, subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out on our new episodes. Thanks for listening and supporting us. Together, we're changing the world. Welcome back. We've been talking uh, about what is really one side of the conflictual crisis that I think is developing in this country that may very well fulfill Abraham Lincoln's expectation when he said that uh, this nation would never perish to some foreign invasion and conquest. That if we, uh, we, would, we would either live for all time, he said, or die by suicide, meaning to say we would be induced to kill our own nation, to kill our own way of life. Um, I think that is developing right now, and I think part of the problem, John, is that people, though they claim to be seriously respectful of the founding and its principles and its premises and the Constitution as a guide and so forth, end up now being thoroughgoing, brainwashed uh, implementers of situational reasoning, where the difference between right and wrong is decided by circumstances when they have in fact discarded the notion that there is any standard in light of which you can make valid judgments about those circumstances. That then reduces the country to a point where everybody gets their own point of view and if there are disagreements we just fight it out. Uh, how that is distinguishable from the war of all against all that Hobbes said to be the state of nature, I don't know. And sadly, I think the experience of mankind suggests that if we keep it up, we're going to discover why Hobbes was right. And in fact, in a state of nature governed by no standard of right and wrong, you embark on perpetual war. And I think what you were just talking about before the break is an illustration of that. Here we have a question. And that question is such that on the one hand, there are folks who are defending the idea that the choice to murder babies is wrong. And yet the only sort of way they can think of to try to protect what they claim is the baby's right to life is to deal with this or that and tinker with this or that aspects 
of the situation that is producing mass murder under the guise of abortion. It's as if they have forgotten that our reasoning must at the end of the day be guided by premises that don't depend on our situation, but that exist so that we can make rational judgments about the difference between right and wrong in every situation. Does that make sense? Well, what you're talking about there is the ultimate standard. And you mentioned people just being lost and willing to believe anything now. And yet that's not exactly true because there's nothing we can do to erase the standard that is imprinted on our very nature. We are made in the image of God, and we know that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, and no one can deny that. And so in order for the left and the progressives and the one world order types to manipulate us, they have to appeal to the very standard they're trying to destroy. Ironically, they can never destroy it. All they can do is reframe it or redefine it, as you said, based on context and premises. So you believe that something is right or wrong. What they want to do is try and manipulate how you apply those standards. So we believe in choice. Choice is good. We want to be free to live our lives and not have people tell us what to do. But then they take something like choice that we believe in that is good and they try and confuse us about whether or not that good thing we believe in could ever justify killing an innocent human but being. And they've duped a lot of people into believing that. But is it just duping or does it reflect a fundamental <sighs> conflict? And well, our, I, well, no, let, let, me, let me say, it's not just a fundamental conflict. It's a fundamental conflict that is in our nature itself. For there is a tension, at least, if not a conflict, between the notion that we are made in the image and likeness of God and the notion that we are bound by God's judgment to do what is right. And, and, and what... I think illustrates the tension is the fact that we're not ants. You see, a lot of nature operates, and, and, and much of our science depends on the fact that it operates uh, according to rules. We don't always understand the rules. It has taken us sometimes centuries before we even get a glimmering of the rules that are governing in certain areas, and sometimes they've come at a great shock to us, overturning previous notions of what was actually governing the situation. But we, have still ha we still have science because we're still living in a context where the adherence to the notion that there are rules that govern this cosmos still produces results that then allow us to repeat uh, with reliability certain kinds of experiences like flying in airplanes or building bridges that stay up or sending rockets to the moon. We can repeat those experiences because we are following the rules. On the other hand, there's this aspect of our nature that is like God. Because one of the premises of God's existence is that he's not bound by the rule because he is the rule. Uh, and, and it seems like part of our self-consciousness puts us in conflict with the basic premise of our very existence, which is the endowment of our nature by God according to his determination, because in spite of the fact that that is true of our nature, we also have 
an inward sense which is then sort of experienced in various ways, that we make choices and that those choices are bound only by our decision, not by any rules. Uh, isn't the conflict we're talking about then a conflict that res reflects an ongoing tension between our nature as persons who represent God without being God and our nature as human beings who have in us the semblance of God's freedom, right? But without the assurance of God's power, except we follow his will. Does that make any sense? Yes, and I, and I think, let me see if I can explain it yet another way that might resonate with some of the, the younger folks out there that I've talked to on college campuses. I think what you're talking about here is a confusion of two similar concepts, and I see it with young people all over the place. Mm. They, they like the idea of freedom. They like the idea of liberty. Leave me alone. Let me do what I want to do. Well, you see, that is a principle with which we agree, but they confuse the idea of liberty with your ability to make a choice. And they think that if you have the ability to make a choice, then that's freedom and you should be able to exercise it no matter what the choice is. So they confuse what is with what it ought to be. Well, it is true you have the ability to choose, but there are certain choices you ought not to make, but they don't see that distinction. To them, freedom and liberty is the ability to choose anything they want, which is not liberty. I think that's exactly correct. But, uh, and as you were speaking, I was thinking to myself, they confuse the ability to form a preference. I prefer that it turn out this way. Right. With the ability, with the power, if I can put it this way, to enforce that premise reliably. Um, and the claim that the mere ability to have a preference then entitles you to use whatever power you have to achieve that premise contradicts the notion that others must respect in you any boundaries to their power. See? Mm -hmm. And, and, and I think that element, that element of, how can I put it, self-preservation. They, they believe in self-will, but they fail to think through the requirements of their individual self-preservation. And so they put themselves in a situation where having worshipped preferential choice without regard to relative power, there any instance in which they are relatively powerless then becomes an excuse to annihilate them as they would annihilate others for the sake of their preference. Do you see what I mean? I do. And there's something else going on here. You were talking about the scientific laws and rules of the universe that govern the way things are because of God's nature and what he set in place. What goes up must come down. Two plus two is five. There are these <laughs> standards that you can't argue with. It is what it is, no matter how you feel or think about it. And I think what we have to do is go a step further and enter into the discussion with these folks and let them understand that there are metaphysical laws of the universe that are just as real and true. So one of those laws is that power corrupts. 
you have the choice, of course, to refuse that corruption and to follow God. But we know more often than not, the more power you receive, the more you want to misuse the power to get more power. There's the law of justice. When you are wicked and you make evil choices, eventually that leads to condemnation. It leads to judgment. It leads to death, whether in this world or in the next. Eventually, the law of sowing and reaping comes metaphysically if you don't do if you do it your way, your selfish way mm. instead of God's way. And I find that these conversations are very helpful too, because otherwise people just want to jettison anything that's not strictly uh, physical math and say they can make whatever choice they want to well, make because after all, it's metaphysical. Let me apply this very uh, sort of paradigm that you're expressing. Let me apply it to our present situation. Uh, because on the one hand, we have people who would argue that doing what is right for the sake of the community when an existential threat exists to lives in that community takes precedence over doing what you would prefer to do although it may threaten lives in your community. Um, that I think is the best argument to be made in favor of the notion that government not only has the right, it has the responsibility to exercise power in such a way as to constrain individual choices that will wantonly threaten the lives of others in your community. That's one side, right? But then on the other, you have folks standing up who are vigorously pursuing the freedom of government to stop everybody from doing whatever because they claim it's going to threaten the community while giving the status of essential services to the business of taking innocent, helpless human lives, a, a, an activity which once accepted on the basis of that premise seems completely to abrogate the respect for innocent, helpless lives and establish as the rule the notion that whoever has the greater power gets to use that power according to their idiosyncratic understanding of good, which is confined to whatever is going to be of benefit to their individual circumstances. It's like we're a nation confronted with these two contradictory choices going down a road where we think we're going to be able to have it both ways, and that doesn't make sense. Well, and you've effectively brought us back around full circle to the beginning of the program where we're now talking about what it is exactly that we expect our governing authorities to execute. Because does it make sense? Is it an existential threat to all of humanity in Mustang, Oklahoma, that we have to shut down the local McDonald's? No. That's wrong, that's tyranny, because people can choose for themselves and their own personal responsibility and freedom whether or not to go down to McDonald's. We, we don't need to shut it down. But there is an abortion death camp just a few more miles down the road that is killing innocent human beings daily. So why doesn't the same chief executive that says we have to shut down that McDonald's actually use that same power to shut down the death camp? And the point that, that I'd like to make here in closing that I think has been proven beyond reasonable doubt in these uncertain times is that the people 
would go along with such executive action. Now, you and I have been calling for chief executives to abolish abortion for years now. In fact, mm. we did a conference last summer on that particular topic mm. and explained that chief executives have the moral and legal duty to abolish abortion in their jurisdictions. But the chief argument against doing that has been what I've heard more often than not is, oh, the people won't go along with that. They'll be marching in the streets. You, you won't be able to get away with it. Well, we've just proven beyond reasonable doubt that that is baloney because people follow leadership and number two, they tend to go along with things when they believe that other people's lives are at risk. We've seen that. Number three, they tend to go along with things when it doesn't really concern them personally, right? How many, If you shut down abortion death camps, is that affecting everyone? Mm. It's just a handful of people each day. No one's going to get upset about that any more than they get upset about the government raising taxes and fees and regulations on services and businesses that they don't use. So our experience here in the middle of this so-called pandemic has just illustrated that if a governor were to say, I'm abolishing abortion tomorrow, you know that executive order and where I stopped abortion during the pandemic, it, it's just going to, we're going to continue in a state of emergency and I'm never going to let abortion start again. The people would go for that. We've demonstrated well, it, we've proved it, so a governor should do it. It's well, the right it's his moral legal responsibility and the people will follow that leadership. I, I, I have to demur a little bit because I think it's really important whether they do it on the basis of a quote real principle that requires that life be protected because otherwise the very act that you are sanctioning strikes a body blow at the existence, the ground on which the whole nation depends for its existence as a self-governing constitutional nation, right? Obviously, um, that's the right reason to do it. That is the right reason to do it. On the other hand, and this is where I think we come, uh, again, also full circle back to the beginning of the program, because you have a lot of people out there saying that what they are doing is in order to show respect for individual life. Uh, and in this case, it's the life of those who are the most vulnerable, the elderly, and so forth and so on. And yet, yet, two things are true. First of all, they don't show respect for the life of the child fully recognized as human in the womb. Why are to, we to believe that they're really motivated by respect for the elderly on their way out of the world, right? Uh, I, I find that hard to believe. Uh, and I especially find it hard to believe when people like Cuomo uh, end up doing things that suggest that he was willing to take people out of their homes, put them in nursing homes where they were more likely to contract the virus and just leave them there to die. I found that rather strange. I found that telling, in fact, against the notion that they actually respect the lives that they claim they are so anxious to say. That's just a lie as far as I'm concerned, coming out of their mouths, right? And, and, and then on the other hand, the other thing that indicates it to me is that they've been taking this let's wait for a vaccine approach. Let's wait for the vaccine. The vaccine is coming. Wait for the vaccine. And meanwhile, shut the country down. And it doesn't matter if people, their children starve to death, their businesses go out of business, they don't have places to live because they can't pay the rent and the mortgage and so forth and so on. We'll just let them all die. Wait right? for the Supreme Court. Wait for Trump to appoint right. more justices. It's an end. The solution is coming. Just wait. Wait. 
But the, the contrast is this. If you really care for life, then you'll do what pro-lifers have been doing with respect to abortion. You'll get in there and do the best you can to stop the killing. Stop the killing. Shut down the killers. How do you shut down the killer in this case? But Alan, the killer's a virus. What can we do about viruses? We can do what we do about all diseases. The first line of defense is not a vaccine. See, that's what they've been putting over on us. A vaccine is not a cure. Cures are different. Cures come in there and they destroy the, the, the source of the evil. They take it and somehow or another disrupt its activity and that disruption, like the police coming to the rescue or the soldiers conquering the village that's been oppressed, they come to the rescue and free you from the danger by destroying the source of it. Are there no cures for the respiratory syndrome? Are no treatments for the respiratory system uh, syndrome that is taking these lives? Have you noticed how they've actually not wanted to talk very much about cures or treatments or therapies? People on the front lines trying to, trying to help people, they talk about it all the time. They've been very frustrated because nobody's been listening to them. Why is it, do you think, John, that these people who claim to be so anxious to save lives want to emphasize a long-term solution that may take months, that may not even be permanent for more than a few months or, or a couple of years, because new viruses mutate, the viruses mutate, new threats come along, you then need another vaccine. We'd be shutting down our economy every few months or every couple of years. Do you think we'd survive that? Because I don't. Yet that's the path they want us to take. Why are they doing this? Well, they can't offer a permanent solution or they would undermine their own power. Government and officials always have to be there to offer you the next solution so that they can stay in power. So it doesn't matter whether it's abortion or a virus. Abortion kills innocent people. Viruses kill innocent people. They're not going to offer you the best, most lasting solution because that undermines their own power. So someone who doesn't go out there and actually seek to abolish abortion completely, I believe they really don't view abortion as murder. Like you said earlier, it's a lie. They don't really honestly believe it. Now, if I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say maybe they really do believe it, even if that's true, they have become so weak and so compromised with their lust for power that they're not going to practically do anything to stop it. Either way, they need to go. I had this conversation with a politician this morning. Somebody was talking about another politician who was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt and saying, well, maybe he didn't understand the legislation and that's why he didn't vote for it. I said, either way, you lose the argument. Either he's wicked, wrong, and corrupt, and he should go, or he's too stupid to understand the legislation, and he should go. These kinds of people should not be in power. So you may kindly and politely run against them. You know, in times gone by under different forms of government, you could replace wicked leadership with a military coup or a strategic assassination or something like this. In our time, we run against them. So Christians, please get out there and start holding these people accountable by running against them. We're in an election season here. You know, let's take the abolition of abortion, for example. If your governor in your state said, tomorrow I'm abolishing abortion, Trump would stand up and applaud. It's an election year. He needs the pro-life vote. He's not going to stop you. Now is the time 
if you are a governor, a chief executive officer in your state, and you're having that come to Jesus moment in your heart because someone like Jonah is fanning those flames in you and you know what's right, but you haven't known what to do, now's the time to do it. The political climate is perfect. We're in chaos. People follow leadership. It's the right thing to do. And Trump will say, well, God bless that governor down in Oklahoma. I stand by him. I'm so glad he stopped abortion. That's what would happen. Now's the time. Let's do this, folks. Because if we don't, like we talked about, we're going on the trash heap of history. Mm-hmm. We all go down the tubes eventually if we don't have a, a resurrection, a rebirth, if we don't rebuild on God's principles. I think that that kind of courage is likely to happen only when the people who really believe in the preservation of life show it on all fronts. Uh, if we had spent even one-tenth of a trillion dollars vigorously pursuing every possible therapy that would save lives in the presence of the uh, uh, COVID-19 viral threat. They would have saved a lot of lives. Instead, they spend trillions of dollars shutting down the economy while we wait for a vaccine and let people die, as they will, uh, instead of searching for the ways to save them. And that's the same mentality, I think, John, that's at work in saying that you're pro-life and yet letting the abortion clinics continue in violation of the Constitution as well as the law and will of God to destroy innocent life without compunction. One way or another, we need to start showing that we truly mean to walk the path that we claim to believe in. And as a people, John, I think, and I say this to all of you out there, I think that until we get back to that willingness to act on the belief as if we really mean it, we are going to continue to walk over the abyss that spells the end of our self-government, the end of all the success and prosperity that has resulted from releasing the power of decent humanity in a way that because we walk the path that God intends allows us to become the funnels, as it were, of his benevolent power to do good in our communities and in our world. Ponder that and then join us again here at Let's Talk America.